Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 6th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and this week we get to do one of the species that's been on the very top of my list since we started doing this show. One of the most intriguing species, I think, just kind of flying under the radar, it's the Sacramento perch. I'm very pleased to welcome our guests. We've got Peter Moyle and Max Fish, both of whom are joining us from California. So Peter's a distinguished professor emeritus at the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. Max is an environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And Max, you have quite a perfect name for this show, by the way. I wanted to compliment you on that. I did not actually think that that was his real last name. I thought that was just like a moniker that he had, but that's awesome. I get that pretty frequently. And Peter, I was going to point out too, I went to Virginia Tech and I was getting my biology undergrad and we had your textbook. So I was carrying that thing around a lot and Moyle and Stetch, I recognized the name. So I was pretty pleased that your name came up when we were looking for Sacramento Perch again. I'm sure you're a better person for having read it. (laughs) Yeah, that was awesome. So yeah, we're very appreciative to both of you for joining us and looking forward to getting to know this fish. So welcome. So to help our listeners get grounded for the conversation to come, I like to start by asking one or both of you to help us imagine what it would be like to be on a bank in California, standing in ideal Sacramento perch habitat, whether it's the past or the present. Say we have one of these fish in our hands. What would stand out in terms of its body shape, mouth placement, color, texture, basically anything about its outward appearance that would be helpful to have in mind as we uncover the story of this fish? The first description of the Sacramento perch was during the gold rush era, it was described by a doctor in the Placerville Times in a newspaper. Huh. He's the one who named it, and he didn't really explain why he called things the way they did, but the what got the fish into the literature of that newspaper article then, along with some, for some other fishes, was reprinted in the, by the California Academy of Sciences in one of their journals, and it became an officially recognized species. That's cool. That's a real interesting history. You don't hear about newspaper articles in fish very often. Well, just think of what California was like. Here it is, 1840, 1850. Suddenly, hundreds of thousands of people were coming to California to place it. It had relatively low populations. And suddenly, some of the people coming out were recognized that, hey, they've seen these fish in the markets nobody had ever described or seen before. So, you know, basically, if you're fishing for sack perch and you catch one, what you see first is this. You know, it looks like a sunfish. A live fish has sort of green and purple iridescence on the side. It's really hard to explain. It's very, really quite attractive in the way that they swim around. And there's bands on the side, very long dorsal fins with, their, with, a lot of, with a lot of spines in them, which is the reason, reason the name is Arcoplates, because it refers to a lot of those spines. But as you say, it does go under the radar because it's not spectacular, so many fish are. It kind of reminds me of a crappie with its mouth. So kind of a crappie bass looking thing. I mean, this isn't actually a perch, right? In terms of how it looks. Reminds me a lot of another of my favorite ones, which is the Amblyplites, not the Archiplites, which is the rock basses. Is it kind of in there? Because, yeah, you also see that indented kind of forehead, kind of like the crappie. So I'm kind of curious where in the Centrarchidae this thing falls. Yeah, well, when I first came to California, that's what I thought, too. It looked like rock bass. And they they actually did some experiments to show they can hybridize with rock bass, which is bizarre. 
They're in the sunfish family, the centrarchid family, along with the bass and the sunfishes. And they've been isolated by themselves out here in California for several million years. So they're long assumed to be sort of a primitive sunfish, but turns out they're not. They're related to the rock basses and similar species. Their long isolation shows in their very distinctive morphology and distinctive appearance. But genetically, they're a good centrarchid with relatives in the eastern U.S., in terms of the Latin name, Guy is obviously really in the Amblyopleides, but what does Archoplites mean? It's Archoplites interruptus. Archoplites means spiny anus. Oh. Of the, of the, the fin spines that are right there at the end, the anal fin. That's quite and a name. Interruptus is, I think, related to the lateral line, which is somewhat interrupted on the, not complete on these, a lot of these fish. Oh, spiny anus interrupted line. That's memorable. Yeah. And then could one of you just describe quickly St. Charcids, what fish those include, and which fish this one is most closely related to? Basically, the St. Charcid family is one of the most common and widely distributed fishes in North America. It's a North American fish family. So it's very special to the U.S. Of course, the things like largemouth and smallmouth bass have been introduced all over the world to the detriment of native fishes in other parts of the world. But the family basically consists of the basses, the genus Micropterus, which includes largemouth and smallmouth bass, spotted bass, a whole array of endemic basses in the southeastern U.S. It includes the sunfishes, which are genus Lepomus, which are these relatively small fishes that are widely distributed throughout the eastern and eastern and southeastern U.S. And then a few odds and ends of pieces like the rock bass and species like that. But basically, it's the basses and sunfishes that make up most of the family. And those are the ones that are most familiar to people. Yep. So that just kind of drives that point home that this is the only one native yeah. west of the Rockies. Like that's a lot of fish in that that very large family. So that's kind of why this fish is particularly cool. That's correct. Yeah. It's very unusual. It's amazing it survived. When you look at the history of the Central Valley, you look at the geologic history over the last million years, with severe floods and droughts and all this other kind of stuff going on, and a number of other species disappearing. For example, there are fossil catfishes in this area. Hmm. And they disappeared. And it was growing all these dramatic events. There's rises the Sierra Nevada, for example. But the sack perch hung out and managed to make it. Max, I want to make sure we get a really good picture of this fish for folks in terms of like, yeah, like what it looks like and also size. Yeah, I was I was going to say regarding the distribution, their distribution does predate the Rockies and the Sierras. And so they've been like Peter said, isolated for millions of years, and they're the only only member of their genus, Archoplites. But as far as the appearance, I would agree they're probably most similar to a crappie of the fish that people are most familiar with. They get pretty big. It looks like historically they may have got to 24 inches long. Our California state record is, I believe, 3 pounds 10 ounces from Lake Crowley back in 1979. Okay. But, you know, there's reports of three pound plus fish coming in every year from Bridgeport Reservoir and Lake Crowley. And I had a friend who recently caught one that was almost three pounds out of Pyramid Lake. So, so that do get pretty big. Okay. When you're finding these fish, are they typically in high abundance? Like someone can go out and catch a bunch of them or are they kind of hard to come by? Well, you know, they're rare in their native range. They're found primarily in ponds, or you can find them in real abundance in places like Crowley Reservoir, which is an alkaline reservoir on the east side of the Sierras, outside their native range. And in fact, the reason the Sacramento perch is not listed as an endangered species is in part because they're a good enough game fish and they can survive in water more alkaline than most of the other centrarchids can survive in. 
So they were planted all over the Western U.S. for a while mm-hmm. in fishless waters or waters that didn't have fish people appreciated anyway. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these perch populations got established in Nevada, Colorado, as well as in California outside their native range. And within California, is it primarily like the Central Valley where they were originally located? Or what was their original kind of endemic range in California? Yeah, Central Valley and the okay. Central Estuary, they tol- tolerate fairly high salinities. And they are really abundant. When you look at Indian middens, for example, in the Central Valley, the most common fish bones you find are Sacramento perch and then thick-tailed chub, which is a minnow. Mm-hmm. The Sacramento perch were obviously very abundant and very much appreciated by the native peoples. And yeah. then in the late 19th century, before all this centricids got well-established, there's actually a commercial fishery for Sacramento perch, primarily uh, to feed Chinese people who are workers who are living in San Francisco. They really like that fish. How do they taste? <laughs> oh, Sacramento perch are great eating fish. I don't know if any of you eat any of the centricids, but yes. I think that they're, they're right up there with the crappie as being the best Best eating fish in, in, in the Centrocity. A white flesh that's a little bit oily, so it really tastes good. It just very holds together well, make great tacos. I recommend Sacramento perch to anybody who wants to eat fish. I love panfish, and we don't have any up here in Alaska, so I'm always missing the crappies and bluegills and things like that. What you have in Alaska is lots of salmon, though. Yep, I eat a lot of salmon. <laughs> Having driven through the Central Valley fairly recently, I mean, it seems like things are probably a lot different than they were. So I w- I'm kind of curious what habitats they preferred or adapted to naturally and kind of how things have changed over time for them. Like Peter said, segmental perch were endemic to the estuary before it was altered and channelized. They were also endemic to Clear Lake and Lake County. So they were really well adapted to these sort of slow-moving sloughs and streams and, and that lake habitat where, you know, historically their biggest competitors were probably steelhead in the estuary and pike minnow and maybe hardhead. So they really got to adapt to the conditions without having to adapt to a lot of confamiliar competitors. Also, I, I think one of the things I'd like to add in there is that I think, well, there's no direct evidence for this. The only one I know about their biology and so forth, they probably were big utilizers of floodplains. Matter of fact, I would guess that they lived in all these sloughs and things that were in the Central Valley, which during the spring months, they would get the high flows coming out of the Sierras, the sloughs would rise up. The Sacramento perch then could move out onto the floodplains, and I suspect they spawned out there. And they must have been very easy for the Native Americans to catch because you know, they, they were so abundant in the middens. And they, they were catching them primarily with nets and traps of various sorts. <laughs> so I imagine that they were really well adapted to this variable habitat in the Central Valley. And a lot of times it seems like water gets kind of controlled and those floodplains get a little bit more heavily managed. To, yeah, well, yeah. The floodplains now are mostly eggland. Yep. Not much habitat for fish. Yeah. yeah, the sack perch had a rough time at the, as a, probably a lot of native fish, you know, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they they had commercial fisheries targeting them. They had their habitat being altered. And then they also had the introduction of other sunfishes in the 1890s. So they had a lot of different things working against them. Still, it seems a bit strange to me when you look at the profile of this fish, at least from what I've read about it, seems to be able to utilize a diversity of habitats and it's got a diverse diet that it can use. It gets big. Obviously, it's popular as both a commercial and decently as a recreational species. 
it just it fits the profile more of something that you'd see become invasive and not a species that you know is confined to really small thermal tolerances or something like that that becomes endangered so it just surprises me that over time this fish not only has things changed enough that it has gone down but also that people have let it go down and it hasn't just been spread around the country and gone off like gangbusters all over so i'm kind of curious if you, you could describe a little bit more of what this trajectory looked like was it just in general, it's just kind of slowly curved down. Did it really drop off, or what What happened there? What's your perspective on that? Basically, the decline of Sacramento perch in the Central Valley is coincident with the rise of the sunfishes, with the non-native centrarchids in, mm -hmm. in the Central Valley. It, it appears to me that the reason for this is that the Sacramento perch is a real wimp when it comes to defending its <laughs> nests and so forth. No. It's, a, it's a nest-building species, just like a bluegill or a pumpkin seed, but it doesn't defend the nest very strongly. It gets discouraged very easily. And they're colonial nesters, and they nest before the other centrarchids do. They're used to, before the bluegill does, for example. So they're building their nests, and their larvae are coming up just at the time the bluegill are starting to spawn, and the bluegill males then are out there foraging very heavily to bulk up for spawning. And these little Sacramento perch larvae are just out there waiting to be eaten, so to speak. So the best scenario I've come up with the disappearance of the sack perch is that they, that they simply could not compete with the non-native sunfishes for reproduction. And, then, and the non-native fishes were also presumably predators on their larvae. I think it's interesting because when you hear the term endemic, your ears should really kind of perk up. I mean, this is clearly a species that, you know, is unique to a certain place. I mean, granted, people spread fish around, but... I'm curious why you guys think, I mean, other sunfish have been introduced because it sounds like a really beautiful, kind of large, cool species. What other species have brought in and what do you think is driving just maybe folks not being as familiar with this particular species in current times? As far as the valley floor goes, you know, green sunfish were introduced in 1896 intentionally. And so much of the waters in the valley floor are all interconnected. And so anything that's fed by surface water on the valley floor sooner or later is going to have probably a whole host of exotic sunfishes. And we've seen that in some ponds where we've tried to create preservation populations of Sacramento perch using surface water. And even after screening, you know, seven different screens of differential size, the non-native Sunfishes eventually become established. And just like Peter was saying, you, you know, we usually see the effect on the recruitment first, you know, well, after non-native sunfishes get established, within a year or two, you stop seeing the young of the year, Sacramento birds, you'll still see the adults around. But after, you know, a matter of five, six, seven years when those adults age out, you just see the population eventually succumb to the non-natives. Yeah. Going back to some of these ones, bass aside, what is it about these lake systems and pond systems where the Sacramento perch are able to survive, but these non-native sunfish can't really get established? What characteristics do they sort of have in common? Well, typically the places where you find Sacramento perch in abundance are usually reservoirs that have water quality that, that the non-native sunfishes can't survive in. Yeah. The reason it survived in isolation in the Central Valley for millions of years was that it was able to live in this valley, swampy valley floor region that had tremendous droughts at times. 
And the man the water would have been confined to these lakes and of various sorts, would have gotten very alkaline, very salty. The Sacramento birds probably also were out in the estuary where they could persist as well. So these fish became adapted essentially to living under very poor water quality hmm. in terms of temperature and salinity from it. That the other centrarchids now survive. And so that is, is what has kept them going. And the reason that people planted them all over the Western United States, because they could put them in lakes that the other sunfishes could not survive in. Got it. Okay. And then from a management perspective, are you trying to encourage people not just to be aware, are you encouraging them to go out and catch this fish? Yeah, I, I think both. You know, a lot of the locations where this fish is persisting, they are pretty abundant. In fact, they're even fishing derbies for Sacramento perch on some of the lake. So, you know, I think we're trying to, you know, spread awareness about the fish. And a lot of times fish that people want to go catch are fish that people want to protect. So, you know, we're encouraging angling. We look at them as a sport fish, but we're kind of looking at managing this fish on a couple different fronts. I think there's there are about 23 waters where we know we've got established populations. So we've been working with UC Davis and trying to look at genetic diversity of those populations. And so, you know, the conservation side of things, we're starting to create gene flow between these isolated populations to try to improve their genetics. And uh, we're also looking at trying to establish some broodstock ponds in close proximity because one of the challenges in trying to expand the range of this fish is just getting your hands on fish in the first place. It would be cool if you could decentralize the whole brood pond sort of thing. Just have everyone have their own little ones producing, you know, maybe a couple thousand larvae or something and have, you know, a tech run around the state, just pick up those ones and then redistribute them. So it's not like you got one central hatchery doing the job. You got all these private landowners with their own little tiny kind of hatcheries going on. Closest thing we have to that right now is that the Contra Costa County Veteran Control Agency has a biologist who loves Sacramento perch, and he actually breeds them in some relatively small facilities there. And he plants the juvenile Sacramento perch in ponds for mosquito control. Mm. They like those small midge larvae. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. They got such a big mouth. Why are they eating <laughs> little mosquito larvae and stuff like that? Well, actually, it's very interesting because when the first study I did in Sacramento perch back in the early 1970s was looking at their diets because nobody had done that before. And even though fairly large fish are feeding mainly on midge larvae, on insect larvae in the water, then once once the perch get up to oh, eight to ten inches longer, so then they switch to feeding on fish, including okay. their own. But by and large, even with that large mouth, the small fish are feeding on relatively small prey. Awesome. From a conservation strategy kind of point of view, what would be the most important thing? Is it getting rid of non-native sunfish or what are some of the major things that I guess would be best for these fish over time to kind of bring them back? Well, you know, you aren't going to get rid of non-native sunfish. They're everywhere. They're some of the commonest fish in California. Okay. They occupy the same habitats that Sacramento perch would have occupied in fresh water or did occupy. Yeah. As a matter of fact, one of the amazing things to me was that I worked up in Clear Lake in the 1970s, which is the largest natural warm water lake in California. <laughs> and I taught a course up there. Students could use Sacramento perch for their study. We were getting lots of juveniles. It wasn't long after that, that they disappeared from the lake. Yet that lake is full of non-native sunfish. And so, so somehow for over 100 years, these perch managed to make it in the face of competition and predation from sunfish. But they eventually died out. So 
that's the kind of thing that you always have to keep be aware of. Sacramento perch are a species that are always going to require continuous management yeah. because they simply cannot handle the interactions with the non-native fish. It's a real challenge for Max and others in the Department mm -hmm. of Fish and Wildlife to really keep these fish going. You know, really what we're looking for is a scare water source, you know, whether it's spring fed or a well fed, you know, managed situation, somewhere where we can control, you know, the establishment of non-native sunfishes. And so that's, you know, a constant search. That's sort of some of the most important conservation management actions is just maintaining the populations we have, yeah. looking at the genetics and seeing how we can prevent inbreeding depression with those existing populations and then looking for new waters where we could potentially introduce the fish. If I were going out to, say, one of these places where they got them established, like I, I believe you're talking about Lake Crowley up there in the Owens Valley, and I wanted to try to fish for them, would I need a boat? Could I fish from shore? What would I use? What would you recommend if you're trying to guide someone who wants to get into this fish to actually go out and find them? If you're going to fish for sack perch, the best to get offshore in a boat and fish for them just like you would crappie with a jig or something like that. That's how I've had the most luck. I'm sure Max has much broader experience than I do, though, in fishing for such things. I would agree with you for the most part. I think it depends on the water. You know, some of these ponds, you could catch them from anywhere on shore. I think depending on the time of year, you could get them from shore. I remember hearing a story from an old retired biologist that they went out trying to collect fish from Crowley for research or translocation, I can't remember. And they saw an old guy on the dock and they told him what they were doing. And he said, well, you should just stay here and went off on their boats and came back. And the guy had stringers full of purchase catching right off the dock there. So uh, <laughs> I think, you know, if you hit the time right, just like anything, you know, you can get them off, off a dock, off the bank. But at Crowley, I think early summer, midsummer, in that sort of 10 to 15 foot depth is where you'd find them, similar to, you know, a crappie. What were the attitudes like of people when this fish was declining because it sounds like it was popular that people would kind of be up in arms and saying hey let's try to save this fish but it seems like that just didn't happen no it quietly disappeared <laughs> from the central valley you know it just got less and less common and meanwhile you had there's all those other fish that were good substitutes you had black yeah. and white crappie you had uh, two or three species of the pomus the sunfishes you had the bass, largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and other basses. So all the other fish were in out there in these same waters you might find Sacramento perch that filled the need for a fishery. Mm. And the sac perch just could not handle the competition. You got that intergenerational amnesia. Yeah. Yeah. We I saw this out in Maine because, yeah, you just end up getting fish that you grew up around. And out there it was like bass had come in muskies different species and people just get attached to those and after right. each generation it's you just don't have a connection to that fish anymore no really but by, by the turn of the 19th century the sacramento perch were uncommon <laughs> and that's when the commercial fishery ended and so forth so you know they just sort of faded away <laughs> and i will say that the state did have some efforts to try to re rehabilitate the sacramento perch population in the 40s 50s 60s the state had a warm water fish hatchery called the Central Valley Fish Hatchery. And in the 40s, they also had fish rescue teams that would go out when the rivers would flood, primarily the San Joaquin, they'd go out and rescue fish from the floodwaters as they receded. And primarily they were rescuing bass and Sacramento perch. Mm -hmm. And they'd either translocate them to other ponds or they'd bring them into the hatchery grounds and then transplant them elsewhere. So, you know, 
as the 30s, that, that there was a recognition that these fish were in decline and there was a need to do something. And there was a hatchery program that was ongoing for a couple decades. But I think at that time, the, the reasons for the decline weren't as clear as they are now. And so a lot of the efforts to, to reestablish the fish were in waters that had these non-native sunfish already established. And so many of the translocations and stocking events eventually eventually failed. Yeah, actually, if I can say, David Starr Jordan, who was the great California world ichthyologist, really, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, wrote in his books, The Sacramento Perch Was in Decline in the late 1800s. And he attributed their decline to carp. He thought the common carp it was so abundant in the state that it was eating up all the Sacramento perch eggs. And the Sacramento perch could not chase these big fish away. Now, why the non-natives and truckers could survive that was a good question. But at least Jordan was on the right track. It was predation on the eggs and larvae that were probably the major problem for the perch. You two have clearly done a lot of work around this species. What drew you to it? Was it just kind of happened upon your plate for work, or is there something about this species that really attracts you to it? I moved to the state from Minnesota in 1969. I got a job at Fresno State. And everywhere I was sampling, I was getting the same fish I saw in Minnesota or out here in yeah. California. But then I also realized that all these native fish, Sacramento perch is just one example of really interesting native fish. Yeah. I thought, gee, if an easy thing to study they publish on this kind of thing that gets you tenure at a university. It was this whole idea that native fish were un unstudied in the state. And if you're an ambitious assistant professor, you find something you can study and publish on. Okay. And How about you, Max? See, I guess my first introduction to Sacramento Birch was probably my undergrad, where I studied under Dr. Peter Moyle here probably ah. 20 years ago. And then after graduating, I got a job with the department working in the estuary doing monitoring trawling surveys. And so I spent a lot of time in the estuary and the Delta and kind of fell in love with the area. But Sacramento Perch were gone by then, so didn't get to work directly with them at that point. But I'm now working for the Native Fishes program, and so thankful that I get to work with Sacramento Perch pretty frequently. That's cool. And yeah, I mean, it's native and it's a game fish, and it's, you know, it's really our primary native warm water game fish. So it just quite a selling point. That's pretty cool. Exactly. It's something a lot of people can get excited about, I think. So. And I guess my final question would be, if you were to just say, final take-home message, you really want to sell this fish to the public, what would you say kind of to wrap up with one thing you'd want folks to take home about this fish? I think, you know, what makes it unique, whether it's aquaponics guys or private pond owners or anglers, I think most of them are conservationists at heart. And, you know, when you talk about a native of warm water and a game fish, there's nothing else that checks those boxes. And so that's just something that everybody gets excited about. Sacramento perch are kind of uh, what we sometimes refer to as California's heritage sunfish. You know, a lot of trout and salmon get a lot of press time, but our one and only since market tends to get forgotten. And so I just encourage people to learn more about the fish and to go out and see it for themselves. They're a great fish to target angling and worthy of everyone's attention, I think. And in addition, I'm saying if you got a spare pond, <laughs> you can manage for a Sacramento perch. Look forward to the day when those brood ponds gets established that Max is working on, and we can get Sacramento perch widely established all over the state in ponds. If we do that, then people will become familiar with it and be much more protective of it. Here, I'll role play for a second. I'd really like to get some tilapia in my pond. Well, have you heard of Sacramento perch? <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
Cool. Well, get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially California's heritage sunfish, the Sacramento perch. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.